overcoming overload, overcoming overload. And I've begun the study by giving you four questions to diagnose your life. In other words, these four questions are to to help you determine whether or not you need this study. So you say, do I need to come back? All right, is this study for me? Well, I've given you four questions to kind of think through to see where you are uh, with these issues. And when I use the phrase overcoming overload, I'm talking about being overloaded by life. A life being too hectic, too busy, too frantic, too overwhelming to where it is it has robbed you of your vitality, has robbed you of a a deep walk with God, it has robbed you of so many things that God intends you to have. And so here are four questions to diagnose your life. First of all, is your soul at rest? Is your soul at rest? Psalm 23, we see the results of, of knowing that the Lord is your shepherd. It says in Psalm 23, verse 1, a Psalm of David, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Some of the most familiar verses in all of the Bible. Such a picturesque scene. A shepherd taking care of a sheep, taking them to pastures where they will be well fed and well watered, where they can lie down and rest, not harassed by predators and by enemies. Just a very peaceful, tranquil scene. Here's the question. Does that scene describe your life? Could you describe your life as, yes, I'm at rest I feel well fed spiritually, I'm, I'm, I'm tranquil, I, 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 I sense the presence of God in my life. Yes, Psalm 23 perfectly describes my life. Is your soul at rest. And look over in Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus invites us to a relationship. And he gives us some insight into what that relationship looks like. Matthew chapter 11, the very end of that chapter, verse 28. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find what? Rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So Jesus says, If you will come to me, you will experience a, a soul rest. Now certainly in the context here he's speaking of resting from your labors. You no longer feel like you have to reach a certain standard of, of behavior, or a certain standard of righteousness to be right with God. You know that salvation is a gift you receive. And once you've received that gift from God through Jesus Christ, you can rest knowing that the price for your sin has been paid, knowing that you've been robed in the righteousness of Christ, and knowing that you have a relationship with God that will never be shaken. And, and when you know those things, when those are realities in your life, you can, you can be at rest in your soul. So does that describe, do you feel like you're living that kind of life? Your soul is at rest. Or do you feel overloaded? So the first question is, is your soul at rest? Here's the second question. Have you lost your joy? Have you lost your joy? Look what it says over in 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Look what it says in verse 16. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16. Rejoice, what? Always. Rejoice always. Do you obey that command? Do you live in a constant state of joy? Do you rejoice always or have you lost your joy? Now, no one in the world has more reason to be joyful than someone that knows Christ, right? If you know Christ, your sins 
have been washed away by the blood of Jesus. They've been buried in a sea of forgetfulness. God will no longer hold them against you. He'll no, long, he'll no longer remind you of them. They have been washed away. They've been forgiven. The Holy Spirit has come into your life to indwell you and to change you. God is now your Father who will never leave you nor forsake you. Your relationship with Jesus Christ or with God through Jesus Christ will never come to an end. Even if you die, you, you know you're going to heaven after that eternal life in heaven, no one has more reason to be joyful than a follower of Christ, right? And yet Christians struggle to live joyfully. I mean, you ought to see some of your faces on a Sunday morning. We're celebrating the best news in the world, and and I see people that just look like they are miserable. Have you lost your joy? That's one of the questions we need to diagnose because if you have, it probably comes back to this issue of overload. Your life has been overloaded. Here's a a third question to ask to diagnose your life. Is your life balanced? Is your life balanced? Over in Galatians 5, Paul shares the fruit of the Spirit. He says the fruit of the Spirit is Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control and gentleness. For the Spirit, do those things, do they, do they characterize your life? Is there a balance in your life? You're joyful, you're patient, you're, you're, you're controlled, you're humble, you're gentle, you're loving. Do you, have, do you live a balanced Christian life. Is your life balanced or is your life out of balance? A lot of people live in a way that is unbalanced. By that I mean they put too much of their priority and their time and their effort in the wrong things and and their life is like this. It's topsy-turvy. Because they're putting too much effort and emphasis in things that are not meant to be priorities. And their life just feels out of balance. Out of balance. But the fruit of the Spirit is, hey, you walk in fullness of relationship with Jesus. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. So is your life balanced or does it feel out of balance? Fourth, this is an important one. Do you feel hopeless? Do you feel hopeless? Look over in Romans chapter 15 with me. Romans 15, next to the last chapter in the book of Romans. And look what it says in verse 13. Romans 15, verse 13. The Bible says, May the God of hope... Fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Listen to me. That's God's intention for your life. That's how God wants you to live. Read it again. Paul says, I'm I'm praying this for you. May the God of hope fill you with joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. God intends for you to walk in joy and peace. He intends for you to abound with hope. He intends for hope to overflow from the deepest parts of who you are. And yet so many Christians feel hopeless. That's a great diagnosis question. Do you feel hopeless? A lot of people get to that point in life because they've allowed their life to get out of balance. They are overloaded in their life. Life is chaotic, and they cannot find their center in the midst of that chaos. So these are four diagnosis questions. If you go to a doctor and you have an issue, the doctor's going to ask you a lot of questions because the doctor's trying to get to the bottom of what's causing your malady. So they're going to ask a lot of questions, sometimes even uncomfortable questions, right? But the doctor needs to know what's happening so they can make the proper diagnosis. And these questions, even though they might be uncomfortable, are questions that can help us to say, you know what? Life is chaotic. I I don't have a restful, peaceful, joyful 
hope-filled soul. Something's not quite right. I am overloaded. I am weighed down with life. So four questions to diagnose your life. But then I want to go to three reasons that we often feel overloaded. Three reasons that you and I often feel overloaded by life. Number one, the pressures of life. The pressures of life. Life can be filled with pressure and can weigh down on you so that you feel stressed by life. So what kind of pressures are we talking about? Well, certainly financial pressures, right? Financial pressures. We all have the same basic needs, and we have families, and we're trying to take care of our families and reach some financial goals and you know, take care of the needs that we have in our life, and, and it's difficult. Living is expensive. Have you figured that out yet? I remember, it's been several years ago now, but Claire sent me to the, the store just on my way home, and she wanted me to get like toothpaste and like soap. Just something, just real basic toiletry items. And I remember going, I found the toothpaste. I, you know, I picked one out of the 500 options they have now for toothpaste. Picked it up, got the soap or whatever. And, and I went to check out, and it was like $13. And I thought, it is expensive to live. Toothpaste and soap? And, and you feel that too, don't you? I mean, it's just expensive to live. And then once you got everything kind of like it needs to be, you know, the AC goes out, you know, or, or the transmission goes out, or, I mean, just life happens, right? And we all feel that financial pressure. We all feel it. Everybody does. And God gives us some really um, great principles about how we are to, to live financially and steward our resources, but we all have that unrelenting pressure because the bills just keep on coming. Even if you have a great month, and everything's just like it needs to be, guess what? Bills come the next month too, correct? And it can, it can cause a lot of pressure on a family. I read an article that was written by uh, James Dobson, and the title of the article is 12 Marriage Killers. And can you guess what one of the top three marriage killers is? Finances. Another one is in-laws, but that's an entirely different sermon. But, but finances, it can rip a marriage apart. It can destroy a family. It can destroy a church. And we all feel that pressure, don't we? Unrelenting. And then there are family pressures. Family pressures. I mean, just the basics, right? Trying to be a, a good husband or a good wife. Trying to raise our kids. Trying to, you know, have some, have a vacation together as a family. Trying to get up and go to church on Sunday morning. And we could just go on and on and on. Just the basics of family life. School and education and future and then vehicles and who gets a cell phone. And we could just go on and on and on with all of the pressures that weigh on a family. Just the basic weekly, daily decisions that have to be made. And it can cause a lot of stress, can't it? Is my family the only one that deals with stress or is anybody else in here? Am I alone? All right, I'm glad there's some honest folks in here. And then there's, you know, then you got... Family, then you got extended family and, and, that, and another, another entirely different sermon. We'll get to that, all right? And, 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 and family pressures can really weigh on you. That's one of the pressures of life. Steve Farrar writes this, The world drives us as individuals, as families, to achieve and acquire more. God has told us clearly in Scripture how to live life. Listen, And when we depart from his plan, as our culture has, more on that later, many lives and many families collapse. God's told us how to live as families, how to live as individuals. He's he's given us a, a template for life that is abundant and joyful and full of peace and full of hope. But when we veer away from that template and do what the culture tells us to do, which is acquire, 
acquire, acquire, get more stuff, achieve, achieve, do this, do that. And we, and we follow the culture's lead. Eventually, the weight of all of that will cause our family to collapse. And we are living under very real overload. And what I just described describes maybe many in this room and many that you know. And so that's one of the reasons that we feel overload, the pressures of life. But not only the pressures of life, the pain of life. The pain of life. Let me just give you, this is just four, all right? There's a lot more than these. Let me just give you four different types of, of pain that we feel in our life. Number one, grief. Turn to Psalm 31 with me. Psalm 31. You say, wait, you are meddling tonight. Well, just wait, I'm not even halfway through yet. It gets worse, all right? Look what it says in Psalm 31, verse 9 and 10. Psalm 31, verses 9 and 10. Psalm of David. He writes, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. I'm overloaded is what David is saying. My eye is wasted from what? From grief, sorrow, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow, he says, and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity, and my bones waste away. And so David's saying, much of my life has been characterized by sorrow. And he mentions there his iniquity. He caused a lot of it. He brought a lot of it on himself, right? But also he was surrounded a lot of times by just enemies. Saul wanted to kill him. His son Absalom rebelled against him and tried to usurp the kingdom from him. The Philistines were his arch enemies. And David just spent a lot of time in his life with folks that wanted to kill him. And he lost people that were close to him. And so David's saying, much of my life has been characterized by sorrow, by grief. And grief causes pain. And pain can can weigh heavily upon you. Grief is very real, very real. And grief will touch everyone's life because we live in a fallen world, right? That's why people die. That's why we lose loved ones. That's why we deal with things like cancer and and diabetes. And that's why we have natural disasters like tornadoes and, and hurricanes. We live in a world that's been cursed by sin. We live in a fallen world. And because we live in the midst of that fallen world, there's going to be grief. There's going to be grief. Which is what makes heaven so awesome, right? That, that in, in the future, because of Christ, because of His grace, I, I'm, going to, I'm going to get through all of this and there's something wonderful waiting for me. Where there will be no cancer and no diabetes and no hurricane and no tornado. It will just be me in the presence of Jesus. No sin with him forever and ever and ever. A fallen world really makes heaven look great, doesn't it? But grief is a reality. Listen to me. Not, grief touches Christians too. I think sometimes we've got to give each other as Christians the permission to grieve. You know, we, we say these little flippant things, you know, well, you know, God just wanted to take them home. Or, you know, we give these little, these little flippant sayings as if we should just stop grieving when we lose someone or something that's near and dear to us. But God has given us, I believe, grief is a gift to release the depth of our emotions. Do you remember what it says over in John 11 when Jesus was standing at the tomb of his good friend Lazarus? The Bible says, as he's surrounded by the unbelief of the people, looking at the tomb of his dead friend, the weeping, mourning sisters, the Bible says, Jesus wept. And if Jesus wept, it's okay for us to weep too. Can I get an amen? We need to give each other permission to grieve because life hurts. And emotion indicates that that the person we lost or, or what we went through really meant something to us. But grief can cause you to live overloaded, to be weighed down by life. Let me give you another one that'll, that'll weigh you down, the pain of life. Fear. Fear. Psalm 56. 
When I'm afraid, I will put my trust in you. That's what the psalmist says. When I'm afraid, I will put my trust in you. Psalm 56, I think it's verse 3. It's interesting how many times God commands us not to fear. As a matter of fact, someone counted them one time. And by one count I saw, there are 365 occurrences of the command, do not fear, which would be one for every day of the year. Amen? Maybe we need to hear it. And why would God tell us over and over again, do not fear, if fear weren't an issue in our lives? Fear is something we all deal with. And fear that's not dealt with, Fear that's not placed into the hands of a sovereign God can weigh you down. And people live their lives fearful. Fearful about the future. Fearful about the what-ifs. Fearful. And God didn't intend us to live that way. A third thing that can cause pain in our life is worry. Worry. Turn to Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 12. Proverbs chapter 12. Look in verse 25. The Bible says, Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. Anxiety, worry in a man's heart weighs him down. If you've ever struggled with with Unceasing worry, if you've ever struggled with anxiety, you know it feels like a weight on your shoulders, a weight on your heart, a weight on your mind. It's a very miserable way to live. Worry. And based upon the, the, the research numbers, the levels of anxiety in our society are at all-time highs. If you look at some very simple indicators like like medicines that are anti-anxiety meds are going up, up, up every year. The number of people that are on anti-anxiety meds are going up, 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 up because people are dealing with anxiety. And let me just say kind of a little quick aside. You say, wait, what do you think about anti-anxiety meds? Uh, Let me just say this. God has given humanity common grace. In other words, he's allowed us to figure some things out. That's why we are able to come up with, with procedures and, 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 and medicines that treat and help us out because God's given us the ability to learn some things, right? Medical technology. And, 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 and I believe that God can use a medicine for a time in someone's life to help them through a very difficult time. So I'm not, I'm not anti-medicine in every situation. Do I think some people take it that don't need it? Probably, but let me say this. Even if you take medicine for an emotional issue in your life, understand that the great physician is Jesus. And here's the deal. Can God use the medicine to help you? Yes. Do you trust the medicine? No, you trust Jesus. That makes sense? Just like if you're going for surgery. Can God use a surgeon to heal you? Yes. Do you trust the surgeon? No, you trust Jesus. Right? He's the great physician. And so he can use different instruments to help us and get us through difficult times. So I'm not anti-medicine you know, medicine at, at different points, but, but I, I do think that sometimes, sometimes we can uh, let anxiety weigh us down and we haven't dealt with it spiritually. We haven't gone to the great physician. And we're depending in man or medicine to get us through. And so... Worry can weigh us down. We'll talk some more about that in the coming days. Worry can weigh us down. Number four is depression. Depression. Look over in Psalm 42 with me. Psalm 42, another Psalm of David. David says, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. 
Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. In other, in other words, David's saying that life is washing over me in waves. It's just unrelenting of, of how difficult life has been. And it's caused me to say, why are you downcast, O oh, my soul? Look what he says in verse 11 of Psalm 42. Why are you downcast, O oh, my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Look in Psalm 43, the last verse. Why are you cast down, O oh, my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. David is dealing with spiritual darkness. He's downcast. And he's talking to himself. Why are you downcast, O oh my soul? The pain, the hardship is just unrelenting. It doesn't seem to let up. And, and you've undoubtedly been through periods in your life where life just won't let up, right? It just one thing after another, it just won't let up. And you just want to just, you know, just take a deep breath and just have a day where everything's okay, but it just doesn't let up. And that can cause very real emotional distress. It can even cause depression. And let me just say this. We've got to be real careful here. Unless you've gone through real depression, you can't understand what it's like. Unless you've experienced it, you just can't understand just how hopeless it can make you feel. And there's not always reasons behind it. Life can be hard and, or you know, life can be okay. And yet, you're just dealing with this, with this darkness that just won't lift. David, the Bible says, was a man after God's own heart. And yet we see him here saying, Why are you downcast, O oh my soul? Some of the great heroes of the faith. You hear me quote all the time, Charles Spurgeon, great English pastor of the late uh, 1800s. He went through... Deep, dark bouts with depression, where he had to just leave the pastorate and go to, 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 live, to live somewhere else for a season because he was under such weight, under such depression and emotional distress. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, another great English pastor who I love, pastored in Westminster Chapel, the middle part of the 20th century. He wrote a book called Spiritual Depression. It's real, and even giants of the faith have dealt with it. So if giants of the faith deal with it, guess what? We'll deal with it too, right? And it comes in different ways and different shapes and sizes and different lengths and different intensities. But depression is real and it is tough. It is tough. And it can be a pain in your life that just overwhelms you. And so why do we often feel overloaded by life? Well, the pressures of life. The pain of life, and we just kind of scratched the surface. There's a lot more we can say about the different pain that we experience in life. But here's a third one, and I think this one is really relevant to, to families living in 2015 in America. The pace of life. The pace of life. We talked about the pressures of life. We talked about the pain of life. But did you know that the pace of life can can make you feel overwhelmed. Did you know that? And I believe that most of us live at a frantic pace because we've bought into three lies. You know what the three lies are that we've bought into? Lie number one. You ready? I can have it all. I can have it all. Turn over to Ecclesiastes. Book of Ecclesiastes. Right after Proverbs, written by Solomon. In Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 10, here's what Solomon says. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. This was my reward for all my toil. 
In other words, the book of Ecclesiastes is really autobiographical. And Solomon the king, greatly blessed by God, had everything that anyone could ever want. And he says it here in Ecclesiastes. He said, I tried the way of, I thought if I, just, if I just lived a wise life, if I just exercised wisdom in my life, if people came to me seeking my wisdom, I thought that would be fulfilling. But he says it was just vanity. It didn't fulfill. He said, not only did I try wisdom, he said, I tried women. I thought if I, if I can just, just, just fulfill my pleasures with women, then that will bring me life, that will bring me happiness, that will bring me fulfillment. But he says it was just vanity. And he tried hard. You know, he had 300 wives and 700 concubines. That's 1,000 women. You know what he said? I had all those women at my disposal, and it's just vanity. Trying to find life through, through uh, sexual um, relationships is just empty. Doesn't last. Doesn't fulfill. So he tried wisdom, and he tried... He tried women, and he tried wine. He says there, I, you know, I thought if I just, if I just took you know, drinks of wine and the best food, if I just treated myself to the delicacies of the land, boy, that would, that would be where I'd find life. And he says, but it's just empty and vain. And he tried work. He said, well, if I just achieve, if I just you know, build some gardens over here and palace over here and temple over here, if I just, if I just build these things and, and, and put into place some great architectural marvels that people will come around and say, wow, if I do all that, then I'll find fulfillment and satisfaction and preeminence and prestige. But he says, I did all that, and it's just vanity. It's just empty. And here in verse 10 of chapter 3, he says, I, I didn't withhold any pleasure. I tried everything And the verdict is clear, empty, futile, vanity. Those things do not satisfy. And so that idea, I can have it all. If I can just get more stuff, if I can just do more stuff, if I can achieve more stuff, I can have it all. And we spend our lives in perpetual chasing mode. We're always looking for the next thing that will give us pleasure or satisfaction or prominence or prestige. And we're always chasing and we're never satisfied. As Mick Jagger said, I can't get no satisfaction. I can have it all. That's a lie. You can't have it all. No one can have it all. Solomon had more than all of us had and he said, vanity. Number two, the second lie that increases life's pace... I can do it all. I can do it all. Look what he says in chapter 2, verse 18 of Ecclesiastes. By the way, if you haven't read Ecclesiastes in a while, just read it. It's very, very, um, very relevant to the times in which we live. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 18. He said, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool. So you know what he's saying there? He said, I've worked really hard. I've accumulated all this stuff, but now I'm starting to think. You know, I'm going to die, and someone else is going to get all my stuff, and they may be dumb. And just waste away all the things I've worked so hard for. And so someone's going, man, that's no fun. What's all this work for if it's just going to go to somebody else? Look at what he, look what he continues to say in verse, uh, verse 19. Yet he will be master of all for which I told and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. In other words, all that work I did is just meaningless. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What is a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. So he's saying, I'm working, working, working. Even at night I'm laying in bed and my heart's not resting. I'm thinking about what I want to do next. And my life is full of activity. My life is full of achievement. And yet, it just doesn't bring satisfaction ultimately. Now all I can do is worry about what's going to happen when I'm no longer here. can't even enjoy the stuff I've accumulated or acquired. 
He makes a lot of sense, doesn't he? Makes a lot of sense. Now, there's some ways around this. My dad says he's spending all my inheritance. All right? But, but really, if you spend all of your life trying to do it all, trying to just be everywhere, do everything, be everything, then you're going to be miserable because none of that brings you satisfaction in life. We see this idea, I can do it all. We see this in the area of multitasking. Multitasking. One day I was on the interstate. I-55, I was heading up to South Haven. And I was right there about where the way station is. And I was passing two cars. So I got into the left lane to, to pass the two cars. And I looked over as I was passing. The first one had a lady in it. She had her visor down with a mirror up. And she was doing her mascara going 70 miles an hour down the road. Listen, that's terrifying. But I'm not done. The next car, the lady was eating a bowl of cereal. I'm not, I'm not kidding. Driving with a bowl of cereal in her lap. That's multitasking, isn't it? And now, you know, someone says it's a text message, but we can't wait till we park to send the text. We've got to text them right back then, right? Right? Cell phones have made us multitaskers because we want to do it all, don't we? We want to be able to drive somewhere and deal with this text and talk to this person and listen to this thing on the radio and all of this at the same time. We're multitasking, we're, we're, we're frantic, and we're overwhelmed because we bought into the lie that I can do it all. We say, well, you know, my, my, my son is going to play baseball like Derek Jeter. He's going to be a football player that's as good as Peyton Manning. And he's going to be able to sing like Pavarotti. And he's going to be able to play the piano like... Who's a piano player? Liberace. And they're going to be a Rhodes Scholar on top of it all. And because we think that our kid is going to be, be all of those things... We, we sign them up for everything. We try to do everything, don't we? Because we don't want to miss out. We don't want to miss out. And our families are so busy trying to do everything. Everything. And it's just overwhelming us. It is. It is. Some people, you can see it on their faces. They come in on a Sunday morning and sit down. It's going to be the only time all week that they sit still for an hour. And it's like, they're just like, oh, feels so good just to sit here. So maybe some tonight. Hey, it just feels so good to sit here. All right, talk if you need to talk, Wade, but I'm just going to sit here and relax. All right? You know why they feel that way? Because they're, they're life's so frantic. There's never a time to just stop and smell the roses. Because we, we've bought into the lie, I can do it all. I can do it all. It's a lie. We are finite human beings. There are limits to what we can do. Amen? There are limits. And so we've got to be, we've got to be careful about this idea of multitasking, this idea that now I need to be connected all the time. A couple of, a couple of cell phone stories, because cell phones have really changed the way we live. Would you agree with that? They've changed the way we live. Now you can't get anything but a smartphone, pretty much. I mean, we may not have someone out here without a smartphone, but pretty much you've got to get a smartphone now and email and internet and you know, texting and phone calls and games, and there's all this, you know, all this stuff, and we're always connected because we've got to do it all, right? We've got to be involved in everything. And, and just a couple of stories about that. One, I was talking to a good friend of mine the other day, and he was talking about his teenager, doesn't go to this church, but he was talking about his teenager, and, and um, he got in some trouble. They looked at his cell phone, saw some things he shouldn't have been doing or whatever. And so they, uh, they took the cell phone away from him. Here's the comment he made. Very interesting. This is what he said. He said, in about a week, we had our boy back. He said he was a different person at the end of the week because he just got disconnected from trying to do it all. And he would just come in the room and talk to us like he used to. And we could just spend time together as a family. And, you know, play a board game. 
or whatever. But he said it took him about a week to adjust because he's so connected, so connected with everything that it, it, it was hard for him to function without a, a screen in front of him. Now, listen, I'm, I have a cell phone, I have an iPad, I do all that, but there's something wrong with that, isn't there? You think maybe we need to think about technology a little bit? I heard another Christian leader speaking the other day in an interview, and he said that his family adopted a rule. Listen to this rule. He said they have a bag by both doors, and when you walk in the door for the day, you put your cell phone in the bag, and then you go and participate in family life. I'm not saying you should or should not do that. I'm just saying it's something to think about. How many of you ever been at a restaurant, and you see a family of four, and they're all like this? At a restaurant. How many of you are that family? Raise your hand if you're that family. You're all, all right, okay, all right. Me too. We struggle with it, just like you. We, you know, because I always got to be connected, right? If I don't send that email back right away, you know, the world's going to fall apart. If I don't answer that text back right away, you know, they're going to, they're going to think that, that uh, I'm, I'm angry at them or whatever. But this idea that we've got to do it all and be everything to everybody is really destroying our souls. We have very little left for spirituality because our life is so consumed with frantic, busy activity. Agree or disagree? It is. We've got to think about it because the idea that I can do it all is a is a lie. We can't do it all. Here's another lie that increases life's pace. I can have it all. I can do it all. Oh, one more thing about I can do it all. This is a really interesting dynamic. This is from a church leadership perspective. You know what we're finding, you know what we're having a hard time with? And this isn't directed to anybody. I don't know anybody who signed up for whatever. I hadn't looked at the list. But, but I know over the last few years, we have things like Camp or, or D-Now or you know, some, some special ministry activity for young people, we can't get people to sign up in advance. You know why? They're waiting to see if something's going to crowd it out. If there's going to be something better out there that comes up before the event. And, and we're having a hard time getting people to sign up for anything early because... People's lives, young people's lives, families' lives, they're just so full. And they're like, I can't sign up. My life's so full. I won't have time to do that. Isn't that sad? Isn't it sad that, that we got to do it all, but we crowd out activity designed to feed our soul? Do you see a problem with that? It's concerning to me. Concerning to me. And so we've got to quit buying into this lie that we can do it all. And listen, put the issues of the soul at the top of the list. Let everything else fall into place. If you don't make such and such, if you don't do such and such, if you're not in this activity or on this team, guess what? The sun's going to rise the next day. And the world's going to just keep on turning. And you're going to be okay. And maybe, just maybe, you'll find a peace and a fulfillment, and a joy you didn't know was possible because you stopped believing the lie that you can do it all. Now, this message is coming to you from a very busy person. All right? I know what it's like. I know what it's like. We, we're right there with you, but we're, man, we're trying to think through how can, we, how, can we, how can we live in such a way that we are not overwhelmed by busyness? There's one more lie that causes us to speed up in this life. Here it is. I need my neighbor's life. (laughs) A lot of people live at a frantic pace because they're trying to keep up with the Joneses. Look what it says over in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 verse 4. Solomon says, Then I saw all that all toil and all skill and work came from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Now listen to me. 
There's a biblical theology of work. God ordained work. He gave Adam work in the Garden of Eden. Work is a good way to contribute to society, a good way to support your family. The Bible says if a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat, right? If a man doesn't provide for his family, he's worse than an infidel. That's what the Bible says. So work allows us to provide for our family. It allows us to contribute to society. It allows us to have resources to give to God's work in this community and world. So there's some good purposes behind work. But in a very subtle way, we can find ourselves working for all the wrong reasons. And our work becomes not about just providing for my family and, and contributing in a, in a positive way to society and being able to give to God's ministry in the world, but my work has come, become about me keeping up with the Joneses. And the reason I do what I do is so I can have what my neighbor has. What Solomon just said, he said, I've been watching folks work and they're just trying to keep up with their neighbor. And that idea that, that I need my neighbor's life, I can have what my neighbor has, is a lie that's causing us misery. And I want to tell you, you think I've been meddling so far, let's just listen to this. I want to tell you why this is a bigger issue now than it was 10 years ago. You ready? Social media. Social media. Now, listen, I'm not, I'm, I don't want to get too off on this, all right? But I'll just tell you this. A lot of people get on Facebook and they're miserable because they think all their friends are having better lives than they are. Boy, you know, boy, my family had to watch it this year and we had a staycation. We didn't go anywhere, we just stayed at home and, you know, went to the zoo one day. And I look on Facebook and, man, my friends on there, they're, they're frolicking on the beach. Man, that'd be fun if we could go to the beach. And they're miserable about their time with their family, even though it's home, because they're so worried about the Joneses. I'm telling you, people get on Facebook or whatever social media, there's other types of social media out there, and, and they see all that's going on, and it just fills them with envy and jealousy and makes people miserable. Matter of fact, I read an article a couple years ago, that said that Facebook is causing people to go into depression because of these issues. Now, let's just be real for a minute. Facebook, when you're looking at Facebook, you're looking at pictures or Twitter or whatever, Instagram, when you're looking at those things, you're looking at people's greatest hits. You're comparing, you know, your, your bad day or bad week with people's greatest hits because people don't put bad pictures up there, Right? Picture everybody smiling and happy and, you know, me and my husband went on a date tonight and, oh, he gave me a rose and any grade and, oh, hashtag we love each other and, 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 but, but listen, you know what they didn't put on Facebook? The fight they had on the drive to the restaurant. Right? Right? Or, oh, my family's having such a great day at the beach. They didn't put on there that the four days before that were rained out because of bad weather. Right? And so we got to be really careful about these, these, these social media platforms that, that cause us to just think, I need my neighbor's life, and if I don't do what they're doing, I'm going to be miserable. And they don't live their life that God's given them. And find the blessing and the joy and have gratitude for how God has blessed them. Super Bowl. How many millions of dollars were spent on advertising during the Super Bowl? And you know why all those millions of dollars were spent? They were spent to convince you that you needed something more than what you have. That if you don't get something beyond what you currently possess, you're, going to be, you're not going to experience life unless you have this thing or drink this drink or go to this place. And it's just a big lie. It's a big lie. But it's causing our families to live at a frantic pace just trying to get what their, what their friends have. If we've got to go into debt to get it and live under the weight of, of huge debt, we'll do it. But we want what our friends have. We want what my neighbor has. I want, I want to live at this level, not this level. And we miss how God has blessed us in so many ways. Uh, I was talking to a pastor friend at lunch. and uh, Not lunch, this afternoon, over coffee. And uh, he pastors in Memphis. 
And his, uh, his wife had, uh, is spending time with a, with a young lady they saw saved at their church. And she's from an area of Memphis that is impoverished. And his wife is beginning to spend time with this, with this lady. And here's what he said. He said, she's lived in Memphis her entire life in this one neighborhood in Memphis, an impoverished area of town. He said, she's never, she's never been to a mall. He said, she's never even been to a movie theater. All she knows is this one little neighborhood in Memphis. and She's lived there her entire life. And I thought, man, what a reminder of how blessed we are. Things we just take for granted, like just going to catch a movie or, or running by the mall or, or, or things that a lot of people never experience, right? So maybe we need to learn gratitude for what we have and, and ask how God wants to use us and, and work in our lives right where He has us. Because the fact that, or the, the idea that we can have our neighbor's life is nothing but a lie. So, we talked about Four questions to diagnose your life. Three reasons we feel overloaded. So wait, what's the answer? Okay, I don't want to live a frantic life. I don't want to live an overloaded life. I don't want to live an overwhelmed life. I don't want to live a stressed out life. I don't want to live a depressed life. What is the answer? We'll come back next week. All right, I'm going to leave you hanging. There's going to be a sequel. But let me just walk through very quickly. Look there in your notes. This is what we're going to cover the next seven weeks. Number one, you need a Savior. A lot of people seek fulfillment in life and in things and in achievement because they haven't found the ultimate fulfillment that only comes from Christ. You need a Savior. Number two, you need a Sabbath. The principles of the Sabbath, a set-apart day to rest from your labor, to recharge your batteries, to focus upon the Lord. You need that. God, God built that into the fabric of creation, into the rhythm of creation. He built a rest period. and You need it. And if you don't take that rest period, you're going to come apart at the seams. Number three, you need a sanctuary. A place to get away. A place of solitude. A place of quiet. A place where you can take off your shoes because you're on holy ground. A place that you meet with God. We'll talk about that. It's going to be good. You need sustenance. Jesus said, when he was fighting the temptations of Satan in the wilderness, he said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The word of God is your sustenance. It gives you the nourishment you need to keep on keeping on for Jesus and to maintain a right perspective and right priorities in the midst of chaotic living. You need supplication. Prayer is a gift from God. Where we can talk to God and, and bring our burdens before Him and, and, and get our focus right. You need supplication. You need, you need to simplify. We'll talk a lot about that. You need to simplify your life. And then seventh, you need a sovereign. You need to realize that God's in control. And you can rest in Him. So those are the solutions. We're going to unpack those over the next seven weeks. So come back, bring somebody with you, and we're going to talk about how to have a restful soul in the midst of a chaotic world.